or multiple weddings, you've probably heard it a lot, and I think a lot of times we let this description of love just kind of roll off our backs, like, oh, that sounds nice. Sure, you know, maybe one day. Um, But we don't really see it as a calling for each and every one of us to love literally everyone like this, and particularly our sisters in Christ um, and those that we're closest to. Um, So you stay in 1 Corinthians 13, but I'm going to actually back up um, a couple of times. So I'm first going to back up to the very beginning of the letter of Paul uh, to the Corinthian church in the very first chapter. And he says uh, in verse 10, Now I I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, that there are quarrels among you. Um, And so I hope that what you see there is that as we have this chapter, this description of love plopped in the middle of 1 Corinthians, um, that Paul wasn't just saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice to talk about love? You know, this will be in weddings one day, hundreds of years from now. Um, But that the Corinthian church actually was not doing this well. There were quarrels and fights and divisions and factions, arguments, disagreements. Sound a little bit familiar, right? Um, And that that is kind of the commonplace. Uh, Where there are people, there are quarrels and conflicts, right? In your apartments and your classes and your friend groups and your families, is just what happens. And so Paul says, we've got to correct this. Um, So as we jump ahead to the chapter before where we will be, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul talks about the use of spiritual gifts, and he's describing all these wonderful things that we have in the Spirit. And he says, these are great, and you should earnestly desire the greater gifts, but he ends that chapter with saying, I will show you a still more excellent way. There is still a more excellent way to live, to serve the Lord, and to be in relationship with one another, and that way is love. Um, And so before we kind of kick off here, um, as you think about just kind of all the different ways that we describe love or try to attempt to define it, um, we know from 1 John that God is love, Um, and so not just that he is loving, but that he is love, he defines love by his very character. And so um, we know, right, intellectually, like, okay, love's not just a feeling, you know, we know that as much as we enjoy the feelings of love, love is not just a feeling. We know that love um, is experienced best in action, but love is even more than just action. Thank you, Katie. Um, Love is actually a, a character that we put on. Um, because that is God, that is our God, that he is a, and not just a loving God, but he is love, the very definition of it, that is his character, and as his people who put on his character, right, that that should be um, who we are. So, before I get started, let me just open us in prayer, I'm also thinking, we, I don't think we really said a blessing, so we're going to like retroactively <laughs> say a blessing, and then just invite the Holy Spirit to just meet us here tonight, and to just teach us. So bow your heads with me. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here in this place, Lord. We invite your presence. Um, even as we as, as ladies feel like the guests of honor, Lord, ultimately we want you to be. You are seated at these tables with us, um, even in our very hearts. Lord, that you are here to instruct us, to teach us a more excellent way. So Lord, as we thank you for this food that has been so unbelievably 
um, prepared for us out of love, we thank you for it. And we thank you for um, these gentlemen who have um, so selflessly given of their time and their talents and their energy this evening to make us feel loved. And we thank you for them. Would you bless them, Lord? Would you bless our time in your word this evening? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, look at me, look with me in um, 1 Corinthians 13. We have a brief little introduction before we get into the love is, love is, love is not. And Paul says, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not love, it profits me nothing. All right, what in the world is all that about, right? We see that love is something really important, but what in the world? Um, So if you know anything about the Corinthian um, culture that these Christians found themselves in, it actually was not unlike our own. It was very sensual, it was very um, just anything goes, whatever makes you feel good. Right, And so for this, these Christians to be kind of called out of that culture, it would have been very easy for them to kind of put on just new actions and say, oh, I'm different from them. Right? How often do we kind of define ourselves as Christians by the things we don't do? Right? I'm different from my non-Christian friends because I go to church and I don't do those things and I do these other things. Right? It just We put on this kind of new outfit of habit um, or behaviors but maybe that's the only difference. And what Paul is trying to say is that who you are is more important than what you do. Because if the who you are is correct, then the what will follow. Um, if you hear a lot in our culture today, right, this idea that um, my private life is kind of my own business, right? As long as I can do the job as a politician or a CEO or whatever my job might be, you have no right to question my character or who I am behind closed doors, right? Think of that um, kind of perception a lot of times today. And that flew in the face of the Corinthian culture, and it does for us as well. Because their anything-goes culture provided these Corinthian Christians ample opportunity to change their lifestyles, to change their habits and their behaviors, and feel very different from the pagans around them, yet neglect the internal transformation of the heart. And that has to come first for all of the external things that we do for us to benefit from those. So the gifts that you have from the Lord, spiritual gifts, the talents and the skills that you have— Those are no substitute for holy character. That's what Paul's saying here, right? Those things that you do um, are no substitute for the inner transformation of the heart. Maybe you lead worship. Maybe you're great at sharing your faith. Maybe you love serving people. Paul lists those things and says they're great, but guess what? If you're not doing them out of love, if that's not part of who you are, those external things, they don't really matter. They're not profiting you anything. You're not getting any credit for them. Um, so it's possible to do those things in the name of the Jesus and for other people, and yet if we don't have a truly transformed heart, or at the very least, we can still be harboring sin, right, selfishness and pride that keeps our character growing for love. It is possible to do all those things for all the wrong reasons, and what Paul wants to show us here is who you are matters and who you are to be, who we are to be as God's people are 
loving people. We are to put on the character of love. And so we're going to kind of walk through these, um, hopefully at a a fairly quick pace here. And what we're going to do is every um, five or so, there's actually 15 descriptors here between the is and the is not. Um, We're going to pause, and I want you to just kind of discuss around the table. So Robbie will put up a slide when we get to that point um, to give you a few questions to kind of kick around. Um, So anyways, somebody shout out. Verse four, what's the first thing? Love is what? Patient. How many uh, would raise your hand and say you're a patient person? Anybody? Hey, we have a few. Teach us your ways, right? So sometimes we think of patience as like a personality trait, right? Okay, maybe that personality is more patient than maybe the gotta get it done checklist kind of people, right? Um, Love is patient, right? Not just how you behave towards people, but it's the character you put on that then enables you to be patient towards people. It doesn't expect immediate results, right? Think of your relationships right now, people that you love, okay? It's hard to be patient with them, right? We expect immediate results, okay? You need to change right away. Come on. But love knows that the other person, you know, they might not be there yet, that they're a work in progress just like I am and that I can be patient with them because God is at work. Um, I could belabor that one, but we have quite a bit, so I'm going to keep moving on because I know I'm going to need the time later. Okay, someone, tell me the second one. Love is kind. So love not only treats people with dignity and respect and looks to good, do good for them, but here's the thing. How many of you would say um, you're a nice person? I've even been told, Renee, you're so nice. And that feels good, right? Like, oh, that's a good thing. I want to be nice, the nice Christian. Do you know nice is really nowhere in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Nice is not a fruit of the Spirit, and it's not listed here as a descriptor of love. What do you think the difference is between nice and kind? Anybody? Thoughts? Throw out something, Sue. I think that's great. So what Sarah said is you can pretend niceness. It's really hard to fake kindness, right? That has to be uh, an air of authenticity about it. So niceness generally is going to be self-serving, right? It comes from a desire to please others over Christ, a desire to be liked, a desire to have peace no matter the cost, right? Nice is great. I can avoid conflict. I might ease in a little bit of passive aggression or some manipulation because, you know, I'm nice, so I'm not going to say anything mean to your face, but ultimately, I'm still trying to leverage what I want um, out of this relationship. So nice can look a lot like love or look a lot like kindness on the outside, but it's actually far from it, and actually, it can be quite dangerous for us if that is our goal. If nice is our goal, we're going to fall short of love, and certainly we're going to fall short of kindness. So nice is deceptive, right? Because just like Sarah said, my actions to you might not actually match my attitudes about you. So my actions might be manipulative so that I can achieve what ultimately I desire. And so there's some deception there. It's missing the authenticity of kindness. We talked about that niceness is self-serving, right? Kindness always puts the other person's good above our own. And have you noticed, like, when you're nice to someone, 
don't you kind of expect them to be nice back to you? What happens when they're not, when our niceness goes unnoticed or unappreciated or unreciprocated? We often find ourselves upset, impatient. How dare they? I was so nice to her, right? We expect it to come back. But kindness says, no matter how you behave to me or back to me, or even if you don't reciprocate my deeds of kindness, right? It's not about me, so it's okay. I'll be okay. But niceness is also really fragile. There's no strength in nice. Kind is strong, right? Because kindness at its core has conviction. I am being kind to you because I believe a truth, right, about you. And it's going to lead me to do um, do what is the kind thing, even if it might not seem nice. So niceness is easily shattered and disillusioned, and it flips to entitlement when those good deeds go unnoticed. It flips to cynicism when our generosity is taken advantage of, and it gives up really quickly when it's not reciprocated. So I want you to start changing your vocabulary, right? First of all, it's not a compliment to say someone is nice. Don't say that anymore, okay? But don't aim to be nice. Aim to be kind. That is love. All right, we're going to move on. Love is not, what? What's the third one? Love is not, in verse 4, envious, jealous. Does anybody's Bible say anything different? I think that's pretty much it. Envious or jealous, right? Okay, so love is most concerned with the one who's receiving the love, not the one giving it, okay? It can actually rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It can empathize with others' struggles and celebrate with their triumphs rather than wishing that their successes were our own. How often have you been in a situation when you're like, man, she's got the guy, the job, the outfit, right? And we're thinking, I wish I had it. Or even worse, I wish she didn't, right? Love is not mean-spirited. And ultimately, that's what jealousy is. Uh, love does not, what's our n- next not? Love does not brag, okay? Y'all know we all like a humble brag from time to time, right? But love is comfortable, right, with what it does and who it is. It doesn't need to prove itself. Love does not need constant affirmation and assurance because its end goal is the good of the other, not fulfilling the needs of our ego. So we don't need to brag and we don't need the compliments of others saying, oh, at a girl, that was great, right? We don't need that because it wasn't for us to begin with. Okay, what's our very next one? Love is not proud, is that what I heard? Proud, arrogant, okay? There's no assumption here that I'll be loved back. I can love freely with no expectation of you loving me in return. That's hard to, that's hard to swallow, right? Nobody, have you ever been like, oh, there's that person I really like, they don't like me back, right? That's not a good feeling, right? We want those feelings to be reciprocated. But love as a character trait, right, as who we are, is confident enough to not need to have that feeling reciprocated, to not have those actions reciprocated. It doesn't bestow its graces on others out of some sense of high-minded charity, like, oh, you, yes, okay, I'm going to love you. Like, it's not brag, it's not arrogant. It doesn't need, um, it doesn't need that sense of um, 
kind of stooping down, right, out of some sense of like loftiness. All right, love does not act unbecomingly. I feel like that sounds like an old lady word, like they used to say, oh, don't act unbecoming, right, like ladylike or something like that, right? But love is actually about if it's being for the other person over against myself, then it doesn't, um, it doesn't behave in a way that disgraces the other person. Do you know what I mean? You know those things where like we, we kind of slide in something to kind of get back at someone. Oh, well, she said that about me, so I'm going to kind of let this leak over here, right? Love doesn't disgrace the other person. Love doesn't seek to destroy a reputation. Love doesn't behave battle, badly in a way that belittles or humiliates or grieves someone else. Love does not seek its own. It seeks the other person's good, not in this quid pro quo way of like, okay, I did this for you, now you gotta do this back for me, right? But because it completely trusts one's own good to the Lord, right? I can, not see, I can seek your own because God's seeking mine. Love is not provoked. I think I struggle the most with this one. I'm just gonna insert that here, right? How many of you would say you kind of have a little bit of a short temper? Mm, right, I'm with you, I'm with you. Okay, not ease, this means not easily incited to anger over a slight or an offense. Okay, it's not short-tempered or grumpy or fractious. In other words, it maintains self-control. Even when all this stuff is coming at me, love says, say what you will, you will not make me break. I will not lose my temper with you. That's what love is. It is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It has this kind of other's forgetfulness where it doesn't keep a grudge, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, not that, okay, this is the fifth time this week that you left your laundry in, right? We kind of keep record of those because we're deciding, okay, when it gets to 10, we're going to have the conversation, right? We, we feel like we kind of have to keep track of this so we know how to deal with it. But love says, you know what? Every time is the first time because I don't remember the past. Choosing not to. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, so just to be clear, this isn't like being passive in a sense of like, oh yeah, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, right? But this sense of, you know, I'm not going to take this wrong suffer. I can sometimes say, you know what, maybe she's just having a bad day and let it roll off my back. That's hard to do, but that's what love does. Not taking an account... Into, not taking into account a wrong suffer means that I don't have to assume that someone's behavior is always about me. I'm not going to personalize that offense, right? How many times somebody, they just, you know, they just make that comment and you think, what did I do to you, right? But love says, you know what, I might not, that might not have anything to do with me. I can just think maybe, maybe she made a bad grade and maybe something happened. It might not have anything to do with me. So love does not personalize grievances unnecessarily. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't show great delight um, in what is not God's good. Okay? It doesn't celebrate, encourage, or make excuses for sin. 
It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices with the truth, rather. It shows great delight in God's truth. We want to be women who value honesty in our relationships, not hiding behind deceit or manipulation or passive aggression. We want to let truth prevail and rejoice when it does. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Further, back up in Ephesians 4, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into him. So what is that truth in love or speaking truth, right? Because a lot of us are really good at speaking truth or really good at speaking whatever we're saying in love, right? Do you feel like you kind of fall into one camp or the other most of the time? And it's really hard to find that balance of both. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says, love without truth is mere sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. But truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. So we think about truth and love, what does that mean? It's saying, I am for you. And when I speak truth, I speak it in such a way as to know, I'm not leaving you, I'm here for you. I'm committed to you, I love you. Love bears all things, bears all things. So love bears up under the difficulties and conflicts of relationship. Love is committed. Now, some of your translations may read, love always protects. Does anybody say that? Protects instead of bears all things? Some do that. Um, it's the same kind of thing, idea that if I'm committed to something, I'm going to protect it. Not just who you are, but your reputation. I'm going to protect your character. That means I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to say things behind your back that's going to hurt your reputation because I'm going to bear that for you. Romans 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. It trusts that the other person can be changed. It chooses to believe. It's a choice. Love hopes all things. Right, This idea that we can hope because we know God is at work. It's a hopeful expectancy that God can and move, will move in the hearts of those we love for their sanctification and in his timing. Going back to that patience. And finally, love endures all things. Love suffers for the other person's sake. It perseveres when it's tough to love and it doesn't easily give up or lose heart. And before we go back to a time of discussion, I want us to look really briefly at the conclusion of this chapter. Picking up in verse 8, Paul says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now abide faith, 
hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, I don't know about you guys, but every time I've read 1 Corinthians 13 and all these lovely things about love, even though they're hard, I get to that section at the end and go, that just sounds like a riddle that Paul put at the end just to confuse us. Anybody else feel the same way? They're like, what is this? Like, no in part, but then fully, and it seems like a riddle. But key in with me on verse 11, when I was a child. Self-centeredness is the way of a child. Think back to yourself when you were a kid, the kids you know, my kids, definitely true of them, (laughs) right? And not in a way that they're selfish, but self-centered, right? Their only knowledge is of themselves and of their own needs and their own desires. But as children grow up, right, they have to learn that there are other people that exist in this world, and those people don't exist merely to satisfy their own pleasures that they are unable to fulfill for themselves. They have to recognize that they hold just a small place in a larger system rather than being at the very center of it. That's what it means to mature, right? To grow up and realize I'm not the center of the universe. (laughs) That's maturity, all right? So what does that have to do with it? Well, we wanna move from codependence or independence, which are kind of the two ditches on either side. Either I'm overly dependent on people or I don't depend on people at all. But we wanna move from that to a God dependence that fosters this interdependence. So as we talked about through Acts 2, 42 through 47 and over the spring retreat, talking about life together and relationships, right? This idea that we do need each other and it is okay to depend on each other. We wanna be there, right? That when you have a need, we can fulfill it. That's what the Acts 2 church was doing right? But also understanding those people don't literally exist to meet my needs, right? You're not here to meet my every emotional and physical need. So it's a God dependence that fosters that interdependence. So why is it important that we learn to put on this character, right? Because I think a lot of times we think that's really hard to do that, or that sounds nice. Maybe it'll just kind of happen at some point. I'll just kind of find myself loving like this, And it's not something that we're really intentional about for a lot of reasons. Perhaps, like, we just think niceness is good enough, right? It's just enough that people perceive me as loving whether or not I actually am. But listen to this, the last verse, 13. Now abide faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Well, faith is only necessary for this life until the unseen becomes seen. And hope in Christ's salvation will one day be fulfilled. Love is the only thing that will last into eternity. In fact, love is what will characterize eternity, right? How we live with Christ and how we live with one another forever, right? And so this life on this earth is us learning to live with Christ and one another in practice, right, of that perfect relationship. There's one version, Away to Manger is one of my favorite Christmas songs. <clears throat> and my favorite version ends like this. And fit us for heaven to live with thee there. That we must be fit for heaven as we learn here on earth to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So love is an attitude, it's an action. It is our character that defines us. And so um, as we move into some Uh, just time or discussion around your tables to really think through some self-assessment here. 
Am I loving people like this? Is this my character that just, it doesn't matter who the person is, this is just how I behave. I'm consistent in my behavior towards people. Or is it, well, I love people like this when it's convenient. Well, then it probably actually isn't love like this, right? Because it's not always convenient. So I want to challenge us to really think through this. If we think that this is a... a character that we can just conjure up on our own, right? We're fooling ourselves. How often have you thought with the fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to practice or I'm going to work on this one this week. Like I could just like get better at it of my own practice, right? We know that this is the fruit of a transformed heart. So let me first say, if that's not you, right? If you haven't allowed Christ to transform your heart, you are not going to be able to love like this. So receive first the love that God has for you that is just like this. And then you will be able to grow in love like this for others. But I want to end with this. How often do we kind of end acquaintances or even close relationships with an offense, right? Someone says, how dare you offend me? And the other person says, well, how dare you be offended, right? And they're kind of at an impasse. Either we do something unloving or another person does something unloving and all of a sudden there's this gap, this rift between us and that other person and it hurts, right? Because we miss the friendship. We miss the relationship, but we can't get our hurt feelings out of the way. Well, non-loving attitudes, right? Love that is outside of this description, which is not love at all, right? Our sin, in other words, creates these rifts in our relationships. The unforgiveness builds, the non-loving attitudes grow, and they keep us away from one another. And isn't that just the enemy's goal for us, to divide us from one another, to keep us from actually learning to live in right relationship with one another? But fortunately, there is a remedy, <laughs> and the remedy is us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 18, Paul says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we can go to others and beg them, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to one another. Our job is to be reconcilers. Have you ever thought of that? That when there's a rift, you have the power to do what you can to fix it? Does that mean you'll always be able to? No, because it does take two sometimes to fix a problem, right? But we do know that as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means we have a lot more onus in the matter than a lot of times we want to give ourselves credit for. All of these instructions, right? Love is, love is not. This is the more excellent way to live in relationship with one another. And when we miss it, right, and those gaps and those rifts form, we can actually do something about it, and we should because that is what love does, right? There is a level of intimacy that God has intended for us to enjoy with one another. That's what true Christian fellowship is. We want to live in that closeness with one another. So I really want to challenge you to think through this some more, to really ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, transform my heart. Give me a heart that loves like this, and that when you have those opportunities and you know I have a choice here, Right? I can be mad that she didn't do the dishes, or maybe I can actually love her by doing the dishes. 
and not saying anything about it, right? We have those opportunities every single day and multiple times a day, right? Don't think this is just some philosophical conversation. This meets us right where we are in our everyday lives, okay? The enemy wants us to think that's not achievable, but it is. It's the way that Christ calls us to live because he loves us like that. We experience that every day, his patience, his kindness, right, his forgiveness.